All right. Hello. Hi, Sam. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> it feels like it's been so long. Honestly. Like, I was like, I forgot how to do all this stuff, like record on Zoom and stuff. I know. Sam right now, just right before we started recording, just echoed the three little words. I don't know. I don't. <laughs> don't know how to do this. <laughs> I don't. Um, it really feels like it's been forever. It's been like three, two weeks. Yeah, two weeks, but... I know you guys missed us and we missed you so much. I feel so sad. Like our Instagram haven't been receiving so, as many messages because obviously we're not posting like anything. No. And I'm just like, I'm missing you guys. I miss talking to you guys. And so <laughs> for all the fans out there. Oh, we miss no. You. no, no, not the fans, just our, our supporters. Thank you guys. Um, and thank you so much for your patience as well. Just Sam and I are kind of juggling a lot right now with school work and then just personal circumstances. Like Sam was recently in New York. And so we just needed to take just a little hiatus, but we're back, baby. We are back. So Sam, how was your New York trip? I loved it. Yeah. First of all, I will say it was unseasonably warm. So don't get it twisted. Climate change is coming for us all. It was like 70 and sunny in November in New York. And I was like, yeah. I did not pack for this weather. I packed for cold. Right. Um. So that was great. It was like actually very pleasant. Like didn't really need a jacket. You know, what's so crazy though. While you were gone oh, out here, we were having thunderstorm. Like, I know it was okay. raining. I was driving. So I live in a suburban neighborhood. Well, I live in the suburbs. So I was in my neighborhood and I was about to go to one of my friend's houses and we have this, um, I live right next to an elementary school and am I giving too much away? Is somebody going to find my house by what I just said? No, I'm just kidding. Um, mm. so I live right next to an Don't elementary school. Don't be so school. dramatic. <laughs> So I live next to an elementary school. And, um, when you're passing the elementary school, there's a four-way intersection and I'm driving to, you know, go through the intersection and there is, I'm not kidding. It looked like, like a river, like flowing water through this river rocks, like everything had come oh up and, and like above it's in the water. Like the water is running so fast I'm driving. There's a car in front of me, another Tesla. It starts going and literally starts sliding. <gasps> through the, so I was like, no. So I turned around. I made a U-turn. Luckily, like they gained oh traction. God. They were fine. Okay. Um, and they made a U-turn as well. So we both made a U-turn and I like took a completely different route to yeah, get around yeah. it. It was insane how much rain we got. Oh like God. it was yeah. crazy. I could not believe it. There was like flash flood warnings. And stuff. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, we were flooded. So, well, I missed that. Well, I got, I had some rain, but not nothing like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was beautiful. And I just love public transportation mm-hmm. and walkable cities. Like yes. the walking culture in New York versus LA is like insane. Like I kind of thought like, cause I am pretty new to LA. So like I moved in 2021, August of 2021 for school. And it's like, it's fun and like it's cool and I like it but it's like kind of really isolating because not that many people are walking around right and in New York it's the opposite like I went any everywhere people walking people on the train I don't know it's just so different and I really loved it but also like I was saying I like lucked out with the weather like it was beautiful so I don't know what the winter is like 
Yeah. Me and my dad were actually talking about New York. We talk about New York all the time, but he was just saying the other day, like, you'll see more people taking public transit and more people walking in New York because parking is like $500 an hour. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's, it's like um, Donald Shoup at UCLA. It's the price of free parking. Exactly. So it's just, you know, you. And I mean, they were built on like yes. a much better transit system. <laughs> Absolutely. And so there are just a lot of factors that go into like New York just being 10 times more walkable, very transit oriented. So really cool. Glad you yeah. had a good time. I loved it. We like Sean and I like biked around Central Park one day. And it was so fun. And That's like, really oh, nice. The leaves are changing and it's like <laughs> not too cold and it was beautiful. And now I'm back here. Yeah. Mixed feelings. Right. Mixed feelings for sure. sure. Should we go back? Should we just move to New York? Yeah, that, that's the plan. That's the okay. plan. For sure. Let's do it. Um, but I also recently got a job offer. Yeah. Kind of a quasi offer. I have to, there's some, some things to work out, but might have a job, which is really exciting. I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. That's really honestly amazing. And completely you 100% obviously deserve that. You go above and beyond with your work. And so I'm really happy for you. Thanks. Those are like my two big updates. Yeah. And just feeling like I need a break. Yes. Yeah. hundred percent. Feeling that. And I just had a break. hundred percent. But I need another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely, when I first started at USC and it was our first and second semester, I was working 35 to 36 hours a week. And I like second semester, we were taking four classes. So that was really intense. First semester, it was three classes, but it was still really intense. But like by the second semester, I was, I was experiencing extreme burnout. Yeah. And then this semester I pushed my hours back, but somehow I still feel like I'm going through burnout. And I'm, I mean, I didn't reduce them that far back. I'm, I'm still working 30 hours a week, but it's still just like, I don't know what it is, but I'm tired all the time. And I'm just, I feel like I'm constantly like, go, go, go. Even though I work from home, I just feel like mentally it's kind of draining. And then also working from home is very isolating. And I sometimes I'm just like, wow, I've been in my room all day long. And then it basically goes, I'm in my room all day maybe I go outside, like when I'm walking Milo and then immediately after, like at four 30, when I'm done working, I jump in my car and I'm on my way to campus. And then I have class six to nine. And it's like, I just want to go to bed. Like, I just want to take a nap. I just want to relax. And I just feel like I can't do that. Um, so I definitely know what you mean. And soon we will have a break. (laughs) Yeah. Like I honestly, like on that note of working from home, like really appreciate going into the office. Yeah. Like, although I have a commute, like I do feel more energized to work when I'm in the office and I just like really enjoy. And I feel like I'm very lucky that I like the people in my office, right. but I just enjoy like talking to them and yes. like in-person meetings are so much more productive in my opinion than online. hundred percent. Like the, like getting lunch with everyone. And I don't know, I do I, I kind of am conflicted because I feel like there's this really big movement among like young people right now, like work from home, work from home, work from home. And it's great. Yes. And I love having the flexibility of going in two to three days a week. And so I, w- I will say that, like, I like the, the hybrid of work environment, but mm-hmm. I don't think I would 
really, um, I guess, unless I'm like, I don't know. I feel like I, I appreciate the going in. Absolutely. If you have a good, if you have a good work environment, office culture is solid. Like you really shouldn't have a problem going into the office. I think for a lot of younger people, especially like when I started this job at Metro, it was 100% remote. I didn't meet any of my coworkers in person until I think almost a year later. Yeah. Um, so actually maybe it was like six months later, but like officially seeing people in the office, like wasn't until a year later. And then our requirement is a minimum of one day a week. So everybody's doing one day. So they'll go in one day. And the day that I go in, there's maybe like three or four people. And it's just like, that can be a little bit still isolated, isolated. Mm -hmm. I'm still like in my cubicle by Mm -hmm. myself. There's not many people in the office. I'm not really talking to too many people, but like then there will be days where our entire team is in the office. And that I just feel is so productive. Like I'm talking to all my, my coworkers, we're having meetings. We, um, they often do like team outings. And so that's really nice, like to, mm-hmm. to get with your coworkers and, and talk to them and, you know, learn more about them. So I do really appreciate being in the office. And mm-hmm. then I also at times, really hate it. So yeah, yeah, the hybrid option is really nice. And the flexibility, especially as a student, the flexibility oh God, of hybrid, yeah. like the fact that I don't have to factor in a two hour commute to work is really yeah. great. Like, otherwise I wouldn't be able to work the amount of hours I'm working. And, um, I just, I feel I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And mm-hmm. I know that there are so many people that don't have the option. And right. so I just see it as such a huge privilege and I'm just, I'm immensely grateful. Yeah. I, I love it. Hey, welcome to Urban Planning is Not Boring. I'm Sam. And I'm Nat. All right, should we jump into our absolutely we've discussed? Absolutely. We have been talking about this for forever. And Sam texted me one newspaper article and I was like, yes, like, let's talk about this. It's really been kind of the talk of the town recently. And then funny enough, last week in lecture, our professor mentioned it. So I was like, perfect. Like, this is really a good topic to cover. Um, So we're going to be going over the builder's remedy and kind of, you know, we'll give some background on the policy and some additional policies that have come, you know, in the event of this, uh, this builder's remedy, and then kind of how developers have been taking advantage. There's uh, a kind of case study that's happening in Santa Monica. So we're going to do a full deep dive and give you guys some, some fun information about it. And we'll, we'll kind of unpack it. So Sam, I'll let you start us off. Yes. And I will say, Disclaimer, I did not do as much research as Natalie did on this. So no correct problem. me if I say anything wrong. Yeah, no, I, but I think it'd be good. <laughs> I'm reading this right now. The, it's from UCLA. I would recommend if you're interested, check it out. It's called a primer on California's builders remedy for housing element non-compliance. Basically, since 1990, so 30 about 30 years ago, California's Housing Accountability Act has provided a so-called builders remedy that allows developers of affordable housing projects to bypass the zoning code and general plan of cities that are out of compliance with the housing element law. That was a mouthful. Basically, if a city doesn't have a 
housing element law that is certified, then affordable housing can happen without like, or it doesn't have to comply with the zoning code or general plan. Right. Which is pretty crazy. Yes. I think it's also though, I mean, the reason why everybody's talking about it is the affordable aspect because often local jurisdictions try to block affordable projects. Right. Right. Yes. Um, but you can, under the builder's remedy, you can build mixed use. It just, it can be residential units only that apply. Um, but it's mainly the affordability aspect that everybody's so keen on because this would, in a sense, essentially expedite at least the permitting process, because Mm -hmm. now local jurisdictions can't block a project and use things like zoning um, if they aren't compliant with their housing element, which I think is is really important. Yeah. So to qualify, 20% of units in the project have to be affordable to low-income households or 100% to moderate-income households. So that's also important to note, like this affordability. Um, So although this Builder's Remedy has been around for about 30 years. It wasn't really until 2019 when Senate Bill 330 passed in the state of California that the policy really became an, a viable option for affordable housing developers to use. So basically what SB 330 does is it prohibits local jurisdictions from enacting new laws that would have the effect of reducing the legal limit on new housing within their borders, which is really pretty interesting to me I don't like I don't know it's just it like is eliminating all the ways that cities could get around this it's like exactly can't pass a new law that you know goes against this yeah and I well I think the the real push for this is the fact that I think for a very long time the state of California because of local control and because of the police power that jurisdictions have with land use regulation, mm-hmm. the state felt that they had very limited say, essentially, or that their power was quite limited because essentially land use is up to local jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. But local jurisdictions for way too long have taken advantage of this and and therefore have not built their fair share of housing. And so the region is suffering. We're in a housing crisis. We have the biggest housing shortage of all time. The backlog is just absolutely insane. The regional housing needs assessment for this cycle came back with, I think it's like 1.367 million homes that we need to build. And mind you, like, not only is this a significant amount of housing units that need to be built, but the amount of housing that we have been building is so far below that, that reaching this is like for a lot of cities, they truly believe like this is impossible. And in some ways, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's significantly, right. it's going to be a significant challenge. But the problem right. is that the state's getting kind of fed up because they're like, we've, we've stepped back. We have not had a say we've allowed you with your police power and your local control to, you know, to regulate this with, through your land use, um, obligation, but you're not fulfilling your duty Mm -hmm. to provide housing for, for the growing population. And so now I think the state is finally like, okay, no, like enough's enough. Mm -hmm. And we're going to actually start putting some teeth into the, into the policies that we push forward. And I, I think that it's good. Um, because it's just like with everything, you can't take advantage and expect that nothing's going to, you know, that there aren't going to be consequences for that. Yeah. 
I just want to clarify when Matt says police power, it's not referring to like the police. Right. Like Sorry, LA, yes. it's like polity. Like yes. the the authority that the that the local jurisdictions have over yeah. the state. Right. Of, that the state has kind of given given Correct. power to the to the local jurisdiction. Yeah. The reason why I use police power is because I think that's how it's written in our constitution. Because yeah. they don't say like local jurisdictions have local control over land use regulation. It's like in the constitution for the state of California, I think it's local jurisdictions have police power. And then they have subtext where it's like, this is the police power. And, and the, one of the main ones is uh, land use regulation. Yeah. I think it's similar to how like state, like any power not expressly given to states is, uh, never mind. I'm getting confused. <laughs> I'm just going to take that, take that back. Um, I was going to say something else and now I forget. Oh, remember, I think our professor said that like Beverly Hills, for example, like their reading allocation used to be like three and now it's like 3000 or something because yeah. the state's yes. actually like, no, you need to be doing this for the people that don't have housing. Like yes. you need to be putting in housing. Exactly. And this is the thing though, is what I mean when I say like, I remember, so for those of you who aren't familiar with the regional housing needs assessment or RENA, we've talked well, about we've it before, Yeah, right? we've talked about it. So, yeah. So if you hadn't heard just quickly, it's just, a, it's a, literally a housing needs assessment. The state does it. They give it to, to um, the Metropolitan Planning Organization. That organization then comes down and they basically divide the number and they give the fair share of, um, I'm sorry, uh, what would the word be? Like they give basically like they allocate, thank they you. allocate yes. it's an allocation. Exactly. So then they allocate the fair share to each city. And then that city is responsible to plan for the housing. The problem is that RENA only requires you to plan for the housing, not to actually get it built. It's not a requirement that the city right. has to build that housing or has to get that housing built in their city. It's just that they have to plan and zone for it. And that's where the problem is because then cities like Beverly Hills, they're like, oh yeah, we're going to put, we, you know, here's our allocation and this is where we're going to put it. And then they literally block every single developer that tries to come and build in their city because it's just like, they, they want to keep all the housing within their borders and they don't want new, like they want mm -hmm. nothing new. And um, so, yeah, to what Sam was saying, the city's cracking down or the state is cracking down. They're getting tired. I was reading about um, how some places in the Bay Area, specifically like this article is about the Bay Area, were like in their arena allocations, they were like planning for housing, but it was like, oh, there's a church here. But like, we're just going to say that like, if we no, needed literally. to, we could put housing there. Like this is a school, like this is part of a school, but like we could put housing there if we need it. And it's like, exactly the it's not actually like a quote viable place to put housing because right. like they talked to the people at the church and the people at the church were like, well, people use this facility. Like we still host mass, we host blah, blah, blah. Right. I don't really know like why they would say that. And it's just because they're planning for it quotes, but mm -hmm. it's not like they're planning on building it. No, again, this is a, they're checking the box. Like yeah. that's all they're doing. They're not genuinely with intention saying we are going to build this housing because we understand as a city, we're going to have a growing population and we need to accommodate that. They're mm -hmm. saying, okay, well, the state's making this requirement and we're just going to fulfill the requirement and it doesn't matter where it goes. We just need yeah. to put it somewhere. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So just to recap, the builder's remedy is used to avoid local zoning regulations 
when the jurisdiction's housing element is out of compliance. Um, a lot of cities right now are like rushing to get their housing element certified. Yes. Because probably they want to avoid yes. something like this, which is just anywho. Um uh the the housing projects can build residential units only or they can be used for mixed use low-income or permanent supportive housing. Uh, but I think only the something is there like a stipulation that if it's mixed use you can only Oh, uh, yeah. So you do still have to be compliant with certain zoning regulations like the and this is at, I believe, the state level like uh, um, you have to be compliant still with with certain aspects of zoning, because, of course, you have to consider safety, public health, like mm-hmm. there, there are certain factors that you you need to, to mark in. So they're not just saying like, this is not a policy where it's like, okay, this is anything you know, goes. industrial. You can put like a, a thousand units here. It's fine. It's like, you still do have to be compliant in certain ways. Um, but yeah, for mixed use, I can't remember, um, what exactly the stipulation is, but I do believe there are still zoning requirements that they have to, um, to follow. Okay. So, um, moving forward, these kinds of housing projects, uh, as how Sam and I were just talking, they, they can be deemed ineligible if they do not provide housing to meet RENA targets. So essentially, a city can argue, hey, we've actually already fulfilled our RENA obligation, which I'll tell you right now, I don't think any city has fulfilled their RENA obligation. So, um, but the city could declare that they have fulfilled their RENA obligation and then they can stop the project because they would say like, basically the housing project is not meeting any goal for RENA. So that could be one uh, one circumstance in which the project could be ineligible. Um, if it would cause an adverse public health effect, uh, that would be, uh, grounds for, for dismissing the project. If it does not comply with state or federal policy, it could be rejected. Or if the project is on agricultural land surrounding both sides of the project, I, um, there, it was kind of interesting. I don't really understand why, um, it might be, well, it could be about soil. I'm not really sure. Um, but they, you cannot build any housing project um, f- through the builder's remedy if there is zone, if it's zoned in an agricultural land and there's agricultural land zones on either side of the project. Um, these projects are also still not exempt, exempt from CEQA. So while we are addressing the one hurdle that often local jurisdictions do try to limit housing development by blocking certain projects and they'll use zoning to do that, or they'll, as we talked about with SB 330, they even sometimes enact new laws to block projects. Um, We're kind of addressing that through the builder's remedy. However, there is still the issue of CEQA because CEQA is a very timely process. It's extremely expensive and you can still use CEQA litigation to block a project. And so I feel that if someone really wanted to, I mean, there there are avenues to use CEQA to kind of halt or stop a project. Um, And so I think this is where Sam and I are kind of, we've been talking just, you know, what is this really going to look like? Um, And there is 
a kind of case study, I guess this is how the, the newspapers are, are calling it. There's a case study um, with the city of Santa Monica because they now have a lot of projects that have been proposed using the builder's remedy. So I'll let Sam kind of give a, give a background on that and then we can talk about it. Yeah. Really quick, I'm pretty sure doesn't isn't there some sequa streamlining for affordable housing? Uh, yes. So there's sequa streamlining for all kinds of uh, housing development yeah. projects. So like sometimes, and I do believe with affordable housing, uh, especially, I think it's like if it's below a certain unit count, you're like exempt. If there's like certain criteria, you can be exempt from sequa. But um, I know for a fact developers that are building uh, mixed income housing and not 100% affordable will typically be building a significant amount of units. Like um, in the case for Santa Monica, I think one of the developers had proposed one project. It would be a 15 story building. It's going to have like a thousand units in it. I'm pretty sure Um, I was reading that. And so with a project like that, that would not be exempt from CEQA. I don't believe because it's just, it's too many units. You have to do a review. Um, but yeah, like smaller projects. And then I, I think there are avenues for streamlining, um, with affordable projects, but I'm not very familiar. CEQA is one of the most complicated policies on the planet. And I feel like I should, and it gets amended like every year. Yeah, it does. Um, okay. Yeah. So I'm looking at this from plan Bay area. So I don't know if this is like Bay Area specific, but it says um, 100 or fewer housing units. And then it says all units affordable to low income households for at least 30 years. Yeah. Yes. So that's pretty, you have, you're, it's a little bit like siloed, like right. it has to be a specific type of project. Okay. Exactly. So that kind of, that's a bit limiting, um, mm-hmm. especially because I think the developers that want to uh, utilize the builder's remedy might find it. So there are, of course, 100% affordable housing developers that will probably use this, but there are also going to be housing developers that are wanting to, you know, make a little bit more of a profit. They're more on the profit side. And so they'll probably be doing the mixed income housing where they're providing that 20% requirement for affordable, but then the rest is market rate. And then that you're, you're still going to have to do CEQA. Right. Okay. Um, okay, so Santa Monica in California has <laughs> been a kind of hot spot in the uh it's been a hot spot for development proposals using builders remedy. So developers proposed 16 projects in Santa Monica using the builders remedy, which would have added 4,500 new units of housing in the city, including 800 units of affordable housing. And, oh, wow, I'm reading this for the first time right now. (laughs) (laughs) The housing, the projects would bring Santa Monica to fulfilling 40% of their housing requirement for Rena. So they, that's a, like, Santa Monica needs a lot of units, and Santa Monica is not the biggest city, so that's a lot. It's insane. And this is where it comes in. So places like Santa Monica, they 
they pride themselves on, you know, we're very separate from Los Angeles. We're not going to be a high rise city. We're going to be kind of a sleepy beach town. Like that's the whole vibe uh, is especially echoed from, um, from both local residents that live there. And then also from local elected officials. Mm -hmm. The problem is that we have a growing population and we do have to accommodate them and we can't push them out into, you know, the desert and Coachella Valley. We need to, you know, this becomes the the concept of density. And this is something that's really hard for cities like Santa Monica to accept because they don't want high rise buildings in their beach town. Um, And so basically under RENA, they got the determination that Santa Monica had to build 9,000 units of housing, including 2,000 designated affordable units for low-income households. So this was in an LA Times article. That was their RENA designation um, that was given by SCAG. And this is based on the methodology, Santa Monica's fair share of housing. This is what they have to accommodate. And Santa Monica is pissed because they understand that they're, they are a small city. And so they can't build single family homes and meet that 9,000 goal. Um, they have to build multifamily residential complexes and they are very, very unhappy about that. Um, and then the builder's remedy has now come in and Santa Monica is even more upset because they're like, okay, now we really don't have as much regulation and control as we once did. And so I'm just going to give you some context on Santa Monica because it's really crazy to me. So between 2014 to 2018, and this is coming from SCAG, from 2014 to 2018, Santa Monica issued only 12 permits for multifamily unit development. What this means is that, so issuing permits essentially means that the project is going to get built. You typically do not get a a permit and it it doesn't go to construction. So when I say they issued permits, I mean, most likely the project was developed. And unless some really crazy unforeseen circumstance, the project is most likely constructed and developed. Um, Or actually it's 2018. So if it's a multifamily complex, it, it might still be under construction, but for the most part, it should be built. Um, so that's 12 permits in four years. That is really crazy to me. Um, I've heard of cities. I mean, even what Sam said, Beverly Hills at one point only built, had to, had to fulfill a requirement to build three. Well, to plan for three. Exactly. To plan for three. (laughs) God only knows if they actually built three. I'm not hundred percent sure. (laughs) Um, but in Santa Monica, the median sale price of a home is between 900,000 and 1.4 million average. Yeah. Average. So Santa Monica is a wealthy, small community. Mm -hmm. And of course there are going to be echoes from community members that they don't want you know, large multifamily development complexes coming up and disturbing the peace of the city. And, you know, all of these, oh, they're going to add to traffic and it's going to be so crazy. And there was one, um, I was reading in the LA times article, like someone was, uh, talking, it was one of the elected officials was talking about how upset he is because he was saying like, we're going to become the next LA and they don't, for some reason, they're just like, no, like I, I don't, we don't want to become the next LA. Like we, we want to stay as our, our small beach town. So first of all, you don't have the land to be the next, uh, like, right. yeah, you could build some high rises and have density, but you're never going to be the next LA. It's always, you know, the thing is, is that these comments 
often truly come from a place of just either a personal bias because, you know, you feel some type of way uh, about multifamily residential, you feel some type of way about what affordable housing means, you feel some type of way about the the residents of multifamily Mm -hmm. projects or affordable projects. This is truly like a personal bias that people carry with them. And so this is where it does have to be that not only are we creating policies, but we are also talking to the community and getting people to understand that not only is this housing needed, but the people that live there are not going to ruin your community. They're not, they, they are literally just people who live and work and play in the same place that you do, you know, you're, it's just, and we have to start acknowledging that these people need shelter and housing and they need stability and they need to do it where they're not spending 50% of their paycheck in order to acquire that, that housing. I mean, and that's just a simple fact. And the problem is that for too long, cities neglected their responsibility to provide housing. And now we have such a significant backlog that Santa Monica is required to build 9,000 units. Like, yeah, it's a significant number, but also it's because Santa Monica wasn't doing what they were supposed to years ago. Like they have left for two, like really I'm shocked that this, that it took the state this long because when I read, and this was when I first started working we had gotten our arena, like the arena allocation, they were, the numbers were coming out. I had just started, I was an intern in Riverside and I'm working and I had to go to a SCAG meeting and I go to the SCAG meeting and then they put up on the big presentation board and they're like, here's the, the allocation for just the SCAG. I'm sorry. Yeah. Just the SCAG region. So the SCAG region consists of 191 cities and six counties, 1.367 million what like when oh, people just were like so that was just oh, this is just scag this is just the scag uh, region and so and it's not just no it's not southern california it's the scag region like we're SCAG not region, yeah. yeah scag region doesn't even i don't even think makes no i think we make up most of southern california but we're not all of southern california because so sandag just, is mm-hmm. san diego correct so yeah. we don't include san diego no we do not and we don't, and Standag has 18 cities. So that's still, you know, okay. yeah. a, a, a different share. Mm-hmm. So our arena allocation at one point, I'm pretty sure it was 1.367, maybe 1.267, something like that. Over a million units of housing required to be built. And there were gasps in the room. Yeah. Like people were shocked, could not believe the number. And I remember one of my coworkers, he was like, oh, that's never going to happen. Then I remember going to a city council meeting in Riverside and one of the city council members was like, well, why are we even talking about this? It's never going to happen. And I just thought to myself, wow, like you guys really don't have any concept of, of what this really means. Like, this is such a significant issue. You don't understand. Like we have such a big backlog because we haven't been permitting housing development and now we're at this, like, this is what we've reached. We, we're in such a, a huge crisis that a, a region, just a region of, of, you know, six counties and we're over a million units short. Like, come yeah. on, guys. Let me put um, here one second. I'm just looking at this article that was published in the Santa Monica Daily Press on October 27th of 2022. This is very recent the Santa Monica thing, very recent. Yes. And it says, the the title is, city leaders still hope to block 15 of 16 builders' remedy projects. Yeah. 
And it says, Santa Monica's elected officials spared no time in sharing their intention of halting the construction of 16 new residential developments that have secured vested rights to be built across town. Yep. The new developments, most of which are between nine and 15 stories tall, came about in a flurry of applications in just a few weeks, all falling under what's known as the Builder's Remedy. And I, okay, so they have secured vested rights to be built. Mm -hmm. What exactly does that mean? So essentially, like, number one, through the Builder's Remedy, they got to bypass the zoning regulation because Santa Monica wasn't compliant. The vested right, meaning that like the project is essentially approved. There are entitlements, okay, okay. like all of that. It, the project is, it, it can be built. Like okay. there's nothing there, basically no, nothing was found under the project proposal to indicate that this was an ineligible project to be built okay. and that it should be denied. So okay. for the city to say, oh, we're going to block the project. This really means that like they're pulling at straws. Okay, so to try to find something. So it says the California Department of Housing and Community Development, or HCD, has now accepted the city's revised housing element, but the projects are now in the pipeline and outside of city control, according to indications from HCD. But Santa Monica is not taking no for an answer. Right. Ahead of the Tuesday Santa Monica City Council meeting, which that must have been in late October, three council members placed an item on the agenda asking city staff to, quote, hire appropriate outside legal counsel to conduct a thorough review and write a report regarding the city's legal options and remedies, including rejecting the applications under all applicable laws. So this city council is literally just trying to be like, what can we do? Any by any means possible, yes, to block these housing projects yes. because they don't want tall buildings, exactly, and I they mean, don't want quote probably undesirable unquote yeah. people exactly to San Monica. And what's so crazy to me, so what Sam had just said about so under the builder's remedy, even if the city becomes compliant with their housing element. Any project that was approved using the builder's remedy is grandfathered in. So it doesn't reverse the the project just because the city becomes compliant in their housing element. Because the thing is that the city did not meet the deadline and Mm -hmm. they were not compliant. And so then they're already vested. Exactly. That means exactly. So the thing that really just boggles my mind, though, is you're really saying at this point that you are not willing to take responsibility for a requirement to provide housing for your residents and affordable housing at that. And honestly, if I was living in Santa Monica, I would be extremely disappointed, extremely disappointed to know that I have city council members that are really only listening to the squeaky wheel folks that are wealthy and most likely retired coming to these city council meetings and saying, oh, no, I don't want those people in my city, quote unquote. It's so ridiculous to me. It's just absolutely frustrating to hear things like this because you are literally neglecting your responsibility as an elected official. Like you are not a leader. If you are really just subjecting yourself to listening to what your constituents are saying. And when I say that, what I mean is like, I, Elected officials should listen to the, their constituents. I and I'm not saying that they shouldn't, but 
I'm saying that they're listening to a very select demographic mm-hmm. that is basically NIMBYs who don't want more housing. And that's who they're subjecting their time and energy to. And it's ridiculous because there are plenty of residents in Santa Monica that are struggling to afford housing, struggling. Mm-hmm. And there are other residents that are in the region that are struggling to afford housing and could benefit from additional units being developed. And it's just absolutely frustrating to see this unfold and to see that a city will waste taxpayer dollars to try to fund litigation efforts that literally have no grounds, none. They are going to be biting for like whatever I just said about straws. (laughs) I just... Oh my gosh, they're going to be pulling for straws or whatever I said. They will do anything to try to find just like one opportunity to shut that project down. And at what cost? Because you literally could be fulfilling 40% of your arena obligation. And like, that would be amazing. And also like, we're talking about 4,500 market rate units, only 800 of which would be affordable. Mm -hmm. So that's a significant, like, you're not only, these residents are obviously going to be contributing to the economy, both folks living in the affordable units and folks living in the market rate units. You're spurring the economy. You're adding so many benefits to your own city, and you're just going to reject these projects for no, for literally no reason other than you have a misconception about density and uh, multifamily housing res- residential development. It's like, just ridiculous to me. I think it's quite laughable that they could call themselves leaders. I, I just don't, it's just ridiculous. I don't get it. Yeah. So this is going to be a really interesting thing to just watch out for and yeah. kind of stay up to date with. I do think that there are obviously valid concerns with something like this in terms of, of transportation, parking, yes. you know, um, just, I, I do think that there are valid concerns Absolutely. And I think this is such new territory that like everything is kind of still getting figured out because this, I feel like also goes like hand in hand with this new law, AB 2097, which eliminates parking requirements for for, like transit oriented development. So it's like, there's a lot happening and it's all really, really new. And I think that it's just not totally figured out by anyone on at any level of authority like from like the state down to the local and so I don't really know what's going to come of this yeah if the city is going to have legal right like legal authority to end up blocking I don't know right I mean I think this is another case very similar to SB9 SB9 was talked about for the first two weeks. Oh my God, we are going to transform. The end of single family zoning. Exactly. It's like, we are going to transform the way we build housing everywhere. And it's like, now I'm really curious to see if anyone has used SB9 yet. Right. Like, or if there are any plans for developers right now to use SB9, probably not. Because as we've talked about, we went through SB9. It has to be that the resident of the property is the one subdividing the lot. And so it's like, I don't, I'm really curious to see if the builder's remedy is really going to be able to address the housing challenges that we have, because it may be utilized in Santa Monica, but is it really being utilized everywhere else? I mean, there are tons of cities that will not fulfill their arena. Yeah, at all. (laughs) And so 
I'm really curious to see, is this just kind of one of those things where we're going to talk about it for like the next three weeks. And then eventually everybody's going to forget that the builder's remedy even exists. Yeah. Um, I can say I'm happy that developers are now aware that they have a little bit more rights in terms of the, like in terms of knowing where they can build housing. But I think it's also like, essentially you're waiting for a city to be out of compliance with their housing element in order for you to even utilize this policy. So I am curious to see how this is going to unfold and what's going to end up happening. Is that housing actually going to be built? Is Santa Monica going to be successful in trying to block it? You know, they're going to be paying all this money for, for some pretty high-end lawyers to come figure out, you know, how they can block the projects. And so will that happen? Like, I'm curious to see how all of this is going to unfold and if this actually will do anything to address the housing challenges we have. Yeah. And I think it will be interesting. I don't know exactly if this is like Santa Monica is the first to kind of want, seek legal counsel in blocking these projects. I I don't know, but this has the potential to set precedent going forward. And so I think that it's something really interesting. Yeah. Just like keep an eye eye on. on. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, I don't know what the state is going to end up doing it when people don't meet their arena allocations you know like we talked about in our planning law class last year right once if the state gets impatient they can just build housing and then like the city it might not look good it might not be what the city envisions for their you know aesthetic or whatever but the, Mm -hmm. the state can just say sorry you didn't do your job i'm I'm going to put housing in and I don't care where, what you want it to look like. We're just going to do it. So I don't know. I feel like this is just a very interesting time to be looking at this issue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think because the builder's remedy has kind of unpacked a lot of other issues that we're facing in the state. Yeah. And, but one thing that I'm happy that it, that it kind of is doing is furthering the discussion of the fact that a lot of cities are simply neglecting their responsibility. Yeah. And I think the state is finally just like, I am fed up. Like when Rena came out, I believe it was 2019 was our, so Rena cycles are eight years and excuse me, Rena cycles are eight years. So it's 2019. So eight years later is when they have to fulfill the, the Rena obligation. And when it came out, you know, everybody was up in arms and everybody was so frustrated. Oh my God, we need to change the methodology. And I've talked about this before, like uh, elected officials were talking about, oh my God, can I, is there a way that I can just give my allocation to a different city? And it's just Mm -hmm. like off the bat, like they did not even want to comply with zoning and planning for new housing, let alone building it. So I just think that it's interesting because the builder's remedy has come out and now we're kind of also being able to see that cities are really neglecting like their role to be leaders in moving forward and really planning for the future population. And a lot of like projected population growth is just residents having children and those children aging Mm -hmm. and then needing housing, like, like their own unit of housing because they're now aged out and they're going to move out of their home and they're going to need to buy a place or rent a place or whatever. And so that projected population growth is not random people coming out of the state into the state of California. This is our own population just aging. 
So it's really ridiculous to say that local elected officials and leaders don't even want to plan for their own residents. That's shocking to me. Um, so uh, I just love housing. <laughs> the topic is just so insane and crazy, especially in the state. It's just, yeah. Every time you hear it, so we're in a housing crisis and what are we going to do? Yeah, I know. I work in transportation, but part of me is like, housing is really like, I mean, not that transportation is a pressing issue, particularly in LA, but housing is very, very tricky. It is. You have to, you know, because it, it becomes, you know, there's, there's policies, yes, but then there are planning considerations and there are mm-hmm. social considerations and there are equity considerations. And mm-hmm. it's just, and, and the same for transportation, absolutely. Yeah. But I think the difference is we are literally in a housing crisis and this has been going on for so long and it was due mainly to the fact that local elected officials refused to permit development. And it's like, that was our one, literally, uh, the housing crisis is simple. Lack of supply, high demand. That's it. It is simple, people. If Natalie was in charge, we wouldn't be in this housing crisis. Guys, if I, oh my God, if I could just have like, if I could just be the boss, just for one day, okay? You get a permit. You get a permit. <laughs> Literally. You get a permit. I would just, it would just be at this point, I'm telling you, I would simply take the police power away. I would. I would just say, you know what? I'm I'm revoking this. Local jurisdictions no longer have land use regulation control. And that's it. And we are now going to plan logically through reason and data and study and, you know, but just urban data and the numbers everything we're going to do and (laughs) And we're going to have the charts and the graphs we're going to have the charts the graphs we're going to do the presentation on google prezi and or whatever it's called google Google prezi slides different (laughs) yeah prezi um natalie's gonna have like a live stream of the to the whole entire state okay thanks for coming to my live stream this is how we're going to solve the housing crisis and it's going to have big bar chart Every it, city. You know what it's going to be? It's literally going to be a supply and demand chart. And I'm going to explain it like this. As the demand increases and the supply increases, we're going to meet a middle ground. We're going to be happy. That's it. Okay. If we supply we be demand, okay, we're going to be so happy as a state. We're taking I mean, on the mental health crisis and the housing crisis all in one. Because <laughs> exactly. they are honestly very linked for a lot of people. No, hundred percent. I mean, imagine Sam genuinely, I live with my parents, God bless because renting a $4,000 apartment, I could not imagine. You have to live in an old building like me. Exactly. And I don't make $4,000 a month. So I'm going to be spending (laughs) 100% of my paycheck on, on rent. (laughs) Then we would cope. You would be what we call rent burdened. Yes. And then I'm going to have to get roommates. I'm going to have to live with people that I don't know. They're going to come in. I'm going to have roommates now. I'm 24 with roommates. I don't want to. Then don't move to New York. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I've heard so many. One of my professors was actually talking about 
Uh, she was like, what's, what's the square footage of a New York apartment? Like, has anybody lived in, in New York and how, how big it's was like 300 square feet? Literally this guy in one of my classes, he was like, yeah, my apartment was 300 square feet. And she's like, what did your kitchen look like? He was like, it was a mini fridge. Yeah. And a table. I was yeah. like, um, okay. And she was like, what was your rent? He was like, I paid $2,400 a month. Uh, what? Yeah. So I just, yeah, the, the. I would just absolutely be the most miserable person if I knew that my paycheck was only going to housing. It would just make me cry every day. So I really can't imagine like the burden that that puts on people, especially people who have children. I mean, it's just, it's unimaginable and it's horrible and it really upsets me. And that's why I want to be boss for one day because I really think I could solve it. I really think that I'm just, I could come in and I could be like, look guys, we're not playing around anymore. It's really time to start getting serious. We're getting units on the ground, period. That's it. And I don't want to talk about it anymore. All right. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> Natalie, 2024. Yeah. <laughs> and I honestly, I don't even want, I don't want to be governor. I don't want to be, I just want to be the boss. That's it. Oh. I just, that's how I want it to be. Okay. Yes. We don't have a governor. We don't have local elected officials. It's oh. just the boss. Oh, that, it's just you. It's yeah. just me. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, all right. Well, on that note, seriously, this time, I think that was a, a good overview of what the Builder's Remedy Absolutely. is and why it's controversial. It has probably its issues. It's very new. We don't really know much about it. This is just yeah. like, High level overview. High level. This is what, what we're is. hearing on the ground. <laughs> this, is, this is what we're latest updates. Yeah. On the ground. Yes. From Sam and Nat. Yeah. I actually think we should do a follow up like next year <laughs> and see like was the builder's remedy used? I can't like, even think about study. next year right now. Okay. I can barely you think about to- tomorrow. Okay. That makes sense. And I respect that, but I'm just going to say it on the podcast and then our okay. followers can remind us a year from now. So, guys. Just send us a little message in one year. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for listening. Thank you so much. Sounded like you were going to cry. I know. (laughs) Thank you guys. And we will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of Urban Planning is Not Boring. If you did, please remember to send us to your friends and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Remember guys, urban planning is not boring. No, it is not.